This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Marcin Vichari, who is design lead and typographer at Medium. Welcome. Hi. Hello. Delighted to have you on. (laughs) So before we get into it, uh, what's your favorite typeface? Oh, my God. Um... (laughs) Nobody's ever asked me this before, you know. <laughs> no, <I'm joking>. yeah. <laughs> um, um, the last one that I really got attracted to and kind of uh, enchanted by was uh, Toronto Subway, which is actually called Toronto Subway. It doesn't have a name. Actually, nobody knows who designed it, which is uh-huh. really interesting given that it only appeared in like 1950s. Huh. And this is very, it's, it's, it's somewhat close to, you know, London's uh, typeface, Mr. Johnston's typeface for London uh-huh. Underground that kind of became synonymous with the city itself, but obviously much less well-known. And it's, I like it partly because it's much less well-known uh-huh. and partly because it's actually kind of weird and not very pleasant. There's some glyphs and characters that don't look so great. And, and, and it's just like flawed and it's imperfect and it's not recognizable, but it's, it's there serving this important purpose, which is telling people, you know... Um, where to go when they arrive at the station or whatever. Uh, I could talk a lot about how BART here in San Francisco is failing at that. But, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, um, and, and it's, it's kind of like, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge gets all the postcards and photos and people's excitement. And there's this bridge on the other side that just yeah, does yeah. the hard work. Right, That's right. how I think of Toronto Subway typeface. And, and kudos to whoever put it together. If you're still with us, I, I'm your biggest fan. Awesome. I'm going to look up Toronto Subway. We'll put, that, we'll put a link to it in the notes. <laughs> That, that accompany this episode of the podcast. So um, you and I met right after you gave a terrific Ignite talk uh, a couple of months ago about keyboards and the history of keyboards <laughs> and, and, and how they developed. And uh, how did you start to look at, at keyboards? Yeah, I, 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 I've been thinking about it recently because it, uh, it's kind of this intersection of you know, computing history and design and interfaces. Uh, they're all together and... and a lot of what I do is kind of those intersections of those things. Mm-hmm. And I remember at some point, you don't look at the computer keyboard as something that's very exciting, right? It's been mm-hmm. around forever. It kind of looks the same as it's always da- done. And it, it's arbitrary, but it's there. But at some point, I think I was I was just looking at other computers from the 80s because my first computer was from the 80s. And what kind of computer? It was the Atari 800XL, hmm. uh, which, yeah, uh, love it to death, but... <laughs> Um, uh, and it had this keyboard, and 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 I was just looking at other computers. Um, and turns out, you know, at this point, the QWERTY standard was pretty well established. So they all have QWERTY, and they all have you know shifts on the side, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then you look at the arrow keys, hmm. the up, down, left, right, and they're in a different position, in a different shape. At every single computer you look in the 80s, mm-hmm. every single mm-hmm. home computer in the 80s has those arrows. And that was interesting because I was like, okay, I guess we never needed arrows before on computers, maybe. <laughs> you know, typewriters don't need arrows because they are manifested physically, right? Uh-huh, you just uh-huh. move the paper or move the, uh, the carriage. 
Uh, and here we have these arrows and we just needed to figure out what to do with arrows. Like it was, huh. it didn't just come as a T-shape from the beginning. It was a lot of trials. So you see like one keyboard that actually has a little joystick because that seemed like a good idea <laughs> at the time. And there's some where the left and right arrows are here on the one side and the up and down on the other side. And it just, and that was like 15 years ago or something when I just yeah. started like saving those images of those arrows because they just seemed interesting and 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 that's kind of i think the first instantiation of my interest in that but really um where it kind of became this this obsession was uh, within the last two years where i started working at medium and at medium our conference rooms are named after typewriters okay which is nice and uh, it's funny it's uh, very medium yeah yeah and, and you learned that casio was actually a typewriter company at some point huh, which is huh. also you know, yeah, not, yeah. not what you would assume of course it's like electronic typewriters much, right, right, much right. later but um and we actually had those physical examples of each typewriter brand in each room, which is really fun. And I just started looking at them. And there's so many other things that look different than what I just assumed is the way keyboards look. Like some mm -hmm. of them mm -hmm. don't have shifts or they like, you know, the return is very computery thing. Typewriters have a, you know, lever uh -huh. and, and there's all sorts of things like that. And I just started poking at that. And then I started looking at the keyboard and there's so many things on the keyboard that just plain old don't make any sense. Like what's a scroll lock? <laughs> right, um, yeah, right. So, and it turns out that typewriters are pretty well researched. It's funny, there's a slew of books in the 20s when typewriters turned 50. And it's just uh. like... <laughs> it's so, funny because you don't think of typewriters as yeah, like, yeah. Um, so uh, these were like retrospective books written yeah, in the 20s like, about how 50 years of the done. typewriter yeah but there's not that much written about like actually what happened since then like uh -huh. and, and the evolution of keyboards and and there's so many stories behind like all of the keys and stuff like that so i just started reading and and the more i read as yeah, you know yeah. as, as 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 you can imagine the more there is to uncover yeah yeah so when did when did typewriters begin to uh, to find some standardization? Like at what point to go back to your example yeah. of the arrow keys? At what point did we arrive at you know practically every keyboard having the upside down T shape for the arrow keys? Well, there was um, as far as I understand, it was there's actually a story somewhere on the web. Uh, as far as I understand, it was one of the DAC digital um, computer corporation, whatever they're called, one of their keyboards, terminal keyboards, uh, had that T shape, and it was in between the keyboard. Uh, or the alphanumeric part and the keypad, kind of mm -hmm. like in the same space we, we recognize today. And I think it was actually backed by research. They did mm. some research around like, should it be a T-shape? Should it be a square, a diamond, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and it kind of landed. Yeah. Right. So um, I th I, I'm going to say probably uh, the 80s and definitely what popularized them uh, was IBM. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. The early IBM PC didn't actually have a separate arrow key set, but their next keyboard from like 84 or 85, uh, the one on, 101 key keyboard that we still see everywhere, uh -huh. uh, they had a T-shape and it's sort of what happened. Huh. The, the, another thing, similar thing that hasn't been standardized completely that astonishes me is um, scroll direction. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this is, this is a yeah. common, oh, this yeah. is a setting you can set in the, in the Apple settings, for instance, but also I think you can probably do it on other platforms. Um, whether dragging your fingers up on the trackpad makes you scroll down the page, yeah. which is intuitive in the sense that um, it's like you're pushing the page up, up. and looking yeah. At, yeah. at it down lower. Or if dragging your fingers up the trackpad uh, scrolls you up, you're which dragging is, the scroll bar. Yeah, you're dragging yeah. the scroll bar, or you're or you're dragging in the direction of the viewfinder that you're mm -hmm. that you're that you're moving. That's only a, that's a fairly recent addition to to 
OS X, yeah. isn't it? Is it? I believe so. I think they just came out with it like it was just yeah. like a couple of years ago. It was when they decided. To, oh, you you probably know. Yeah, I, I know. I think I can speculate. To me, it always seemed like. The two words that were not supposed to converge converged. One which was scroll bars, and scroll bars work as go the certain way. And then mm -hmm. we added, you know, fingers to simulate moving scroll bars, and that's what it was. And then we had those uh, iOS or touch devices where you actually move them with your fingers. And mm -hmm. and it turned out they actually go the opposite way. It reminds me of the, um, you know, why the phone dialer keyboard on your iPhone has one, two, three on one side. And then the calculator has one, two, three on the other side. Right, right, right. Right, which which doesn't make sense. And if you just look at them, they're reversed. And that's because like early calculators had numbers going from the you know zero was at the bottom and going all the way up. There were physical calculators with a lot of those numbers, and they eventually they became desk calculators, and then eventually they became applications. Eventually there was an app on your phone. Because Apple loves skeuomorphism so yeah. much more than anything. Maybe, but it's <laughs> well, also just what people yeah. were used to, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah, just yeah. natural. Like why why change something that works? Yeah, yeah. And then on the other side, you had a phone and the rotary dial where the zero is at the top and the one goes at the top, and then it became a keypad on on phones, and then it became etc. etc. Yeah. And now they never planned for this to happen. Right, right. How do you solve this, right? People, people. Clearly, are the answer this. is to change the iPhone dialing interface to a rotary one that you have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that was an early that was an early suggestion for the iPhone, right? It was something that oh, looked yeah. like uh, like for each an, an number you had to like roll it around. Yeah, it was because it, <laughs> it had the form factor of the the um, scroll wheel yeah. iPod, and yeah, so yeah. you'd be dialing with oh, the true, with the yeah. wheel. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine how impractical that would have been. But so satisfying if you do this now. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally, totally. So we arrive at this place where we're all kind of used to it and our muscle memory just operates yeah. fluidly. You know, if you if you pick up a phone, there's no question that you're dialing the right numbers because you're, you're doing it with your thumb and you've done it a million times before. If you put your uh, hand on the numerical keypad at the right side of your keyboard, um, that goes in the opposite direction, usually, I guess. And uh, yeah. uh, that's totally natural, too. And there's nobody who has to use both of them all the time at the same time. Right. So it doesn't, or maybe there are some people, but it doesn't happen often enough that we see this as a problem. Right, right, right. So do you see, do you see um, sort of keyboard design as something that's getting progressively standardized so that, you know, the QWERTY keyboard has been standard for some time and then arrows got standardized late 80s and then, you know, uh, other, other aspects are, you know, got standardized in the 90s and now, now it's a reasonably static thing? It is in a sense, but it's also fun to see some of those things come back. For example, one of the early things that uh, took a while for figure out is like how many keys are actually there and what happens with shifting, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there were typewriters who had no shift, like all the keys were there and there were like hundreds of them. And it was fun because you could completely understand what's going on, but it was impossible to do touch typing in any way because there were too many of them. And, mm -hmm. and as it turns out, touch typing also had to be invented by somebody. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it wasn't an early consideration. Right? There were some typewriters that had three banks, so three rows of keys, so only letters, and the numbers were shifted on the mm -hmm. top row. Mm -hmm. And there were actually two shifts, one for numbers and punctuation, one for uppercase and lowercase. Uh -huh. um, and then there was this four bank thing that we have today, which is you know, uh, three rows of letters and at the top of them numbers, mm -hmm. right? And that turned out to be the one that quote unquote won. Um, uh, and, you know, that's been going on for a hundred years. But if you look at your iPhone keyboard today, it's actually three banks, right? The numbers mm -hmm. are huh. shifted. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's very different reasons for this to happen, uh -huh. but it happened again. And, so and you see the same thing, the, the same situation, for example, like early typewriters didn't have a lowercase because... 
uh, it was just hard to build and it, it, it was actually deemed not important enough. Um, huh. uh, but eventually, it turned out we actually like uppercase and lowercase. It's much easier to read <laughs> lowercase. So there was added. And then early computers didn't have a, a lowercase because they only had six bits. It was hard, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then early whole computers, same thing. And then, you know, so you see this kind of situation happen over and over again where there's hardware limitations are very, very different but it's still the same shortcuts we, or the same solutions we arrive at. So, so I wonder what's gonna happen with keyboards. Now it's a little bit of a different situation because of course we have touch and mice before that, and now we have voice. So I'm not, I, it's hard for me to speculate what's gonna yeah, happen, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's kind of fun to see um, us reinventing the same ideas over and over again. And you know, emoji is the same as semi-graphics is the same, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so, right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the touch screen brought about this kind of um, flexibility to keyboard layout that's really yeah. interesting. People had had explored it. I think, you know, I remember maybe 10 or 15 years ago reading about these phenomenally expensive kind of demonstration keyboards that would have like a little LCD display in each key, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. and they, were, they were marketed to people who were like Photoshop power users and you wanted the, the Photoshop shortcut to show up in, yeah. in the key. Um, th but that was the closest thing you had. And then the iPhone came out. Yeah. And I remember uh, the first time that that I saw the the way that the um, the comma button turns into the at sign when you're in a an email yeah. field that's been properly tagged for the keyboard yeah. to do that. Yeah. And, and and it is just it's the most convenient thing imaginable when you're on a small mobile exactly. keyboard that uh, you don't yeah. need a comma when you're typing an email address, but you sure do need a an at sign. Yeah, it's it's this, it's this funny way. Uh, you know, every couple of decades we have like another level of abstraction. Like when you look at the typewriter, like you've solved the typewriter. Like there's like no, <laughs> there's no secrets to what's gonna happen when you press yeah. a key. It's all there, mm -hmm. you know, on labels. The interface isn't changing. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it's 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 just obvious, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And then you have computers, and let's say you have an Alt key. And you have no idea what's going to happen when you hold uh -huh. this and, and do something, right? <laughs> there might be some keys that are not printed on the keycaps, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and now you arrive at the situation where you don't know what's even going to happen to the whole keyboard, right? Uh -huh. When you do uh -huh. something, right? It could become like one big button, could be, and it does sometimes, right? It becomes this touchpad where you can write your characters with letters, so you can do swipe and all sorts of stuff like that. You can talk to it. So it's kind of funny to see that, like, more and more levels of abstraction. But the foundation is still the same mechanical thing from 150 years ago, but we can kind of add to it and, and, and take, it, take it apart further and further. Have you looked at keyboard accessories? Like the, um, I remember uh, my, my dad's computer when I was growing up had uh, a, a slot above the function keys yeah. that accepted um, pre-printed yeah. function overlays. key guidelines. Oh, yeah. overlays, overlays, right. So, yeah. so for WordPerfect, there was one and you would drop it in. There were little pegs, I think, that these, that these yeah. strips sat in to label, you know, alt F2 yeah. turn on bold. They make like yeah. uh they make like uh silicone overlays for like Avid and Final Cut and Photoshop yeah. and stuff like that as well. The funny thing about the the function keys is that they actually were put eventually on on the PCs at the top just so that they could be right below your computer screen where the last line would tell you what they do. So eventually the physical uh. overlays or around the same time physical overlays actually became like on-screen overlays. Right, right, right. Because the, the first PC had the uh, function keys on the left. Uh-huh. But then they moved to like F1 to F12 at the top, just exactly so that it's kind of funny how, wow. and they're still there, which yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't have to be yeah. there anymore. Right, right, right. Like we don't use them anyway, but they're still ended up there. So the intention was that they would be basically soft keys, like you would have on an exactly. ATM or a payment terminal yeah. or something. And that's because like it, it was the easiest solution to have more functions. You know, the mice was not there yet. The voice was not there yet. Maybe even the menus that would be... Uh, like shown on top pop-up menus and stuff like that. GUIs were kind of arriving. 
But it was like an easy way to give you more stuff that was customizable, that mm -hmm. every application could have a different set. So, um, ah. but the vestige of that is still there. They're still uh -huh. the same. The same way caps lock is still where it is, even though it doesn't physically have to be next to shift to hold it in place, which is what shift lock used to do like hundred whatever years ago, right? Yeah. We still have this like crazy prime real estate devoted to this thing that nobody should really use. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it's only Chromebooks that try to take this away and put search uh, in its place. I'm actually not sure what the what the reaction was of, of everybody to it. And I think you could still map it to Caps Lock if you want it. <laughs> if you really, really want Caps yeah. Lock. Yeah. I remember the reaction, a little bit of the reaction to uh, to the replacement of the of the Caps Lock with the search button. And and I don't think anyone was particularly angry, but there were sort of obituaries for the Caps Lock <laughs> key. Yeah. Fond because, farewells. Yeah, yeah, fond farewells to, as you say, prime real estate that have been given over to this fairly obscure function. You know, if yeah. you really need to make something all caps, probably there's a drop-down menu in your word processor that'll do yeah. it. But um, it, it kind of took a place among other computer hardware transitions that had happened in the, in the 10 years or so before where like the iMac got rid of the floppy disk drive and yeah. then it got rid of the CD drive. Every, and, everything after yeah. list machines got rid of super hyper and meta. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the space cadet keyboard. Yeah, I have one of those. Oh yeah? Yeah. Oh. I've talked about it on the podcast a couple of times before. Uh, listeners may may have heard me rambling on about it, but it's it's an on, one of my friends had it underneath his stairs, and it's it's kind of an ongoing thing that I'm working on restoring and bringing back up again. Um, so far, I've washed the keys, and <laughs> it it needed it. It really did. Pictures. Yeah. Well, it had like yeah, it had like you know 30 years of hacker cruft under the under the switches and everything like that. But yeah, the the modifier keys yeah. on that are are, are just glorious. It's, it's like Just the glorious. ultimate version of that idea that you can like hide so many things within the keyboard. Right? Exactly, it's yeah. It's 5,000 possibilities or something. Yeah, like this, yeah. Right? It's more like playing a piano than, yeah. than like... Yeah, which is actually funny because the, the um, uh, Doug Engelbart, rest his soul, um, mm -hmm. uh, he's kind of known generally as the inventor of the mouse, which is really, really unfair because he tried to do so many other things. And one of his really interesting ideas was that um, you know, you have your keyboard in front and it looks like a keyboard um, and you also have a mouse with your right or left hand. Mm -hmm. um, but then what does you your the, other hand do? The cord, the, the corded cord keyboard, keyboard, the yeah. corded keyboard that just huh. ended up being just so profoundly hard to use um, or at least hard to approach. The learning curve is steep, I exactly. think, is the issue. And I think that was like something that, 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 that that's why we still have QWERTY because like it's good yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. But VI and Emacs are also hard to approach, and they exactly. found their niche, and people still argue well, about which one they love more. It turns yeah. out that Emacs is like way easier to use if you have the right hardware, because like which is a keyboard that supports cording. You mean? Well, yeah, I mean that's the whole point of having. So I mean, so so most people are familiar with the, the control and alt keys on a keyboard, but yeah. back in the day when when keyboards were first being made, um, there were much more of what they call the the Bucky keys, which are those modifiers, and so the list machines and Emacs and stuff were designed to use. Control and Alt, but also super meta and hyper modifiers. And so you would be able to input really complicated commands to your editors and, and manipulate buffers and, and data yeah. and stuff like that by kind of inputting chords. And you play it more like a piano rather than like typing in series of, I mean, there, there is a command prompt, but it's much more of a, you have to, it's a tool that you have yeah. to acquire the skill to learn how to do. But once you do it, you can really fly. You can go a lot. I mean, that's why that's why people get so combative about about using Emacs and text yeah. mode editors and everything like that. Because actually, like once you acquire the skill, you can go yeah. and work much, much, much faster than you can with like a like a graphical interface. Yeah, and and there's something for some. Of, I mean, for some things. Like, yeah, there's something very like glorious about 
like your, if you develop your muscle memory. Mm-hmm. Like very recently, uh, it just took me by surprise. So I, I've been using a Mac for like 15 years, uh, but I was a pretty heavy Windows user and DOS user before that. And, you know, I use Norton Commander, if anybody remembers that. That was like yeah. a very, like you, you could memorize your keys and you just fly, you'd fly. Uh-huh. Uh, but recently I was um, uh, kind of doing something on my Mac and... I was like half absent-minded, which is when those kind of things often kick in. Um, and I tried to save some things to the desktop, and I absent-mindedly just started typing C uh, colon backslash because yeah. that was the desktop yeah. on my PC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 years ago, it just came back like as muscle memory. Yeah. Uh-huh, and I just looked uh-huh. at it like, oh my God, yeah, what yeah. else is buried there? Right, right, right. right. Things? Yeah, it's, I mean, it is as intuitive once you've, once you've learned those systems as, um, you know, throwing the mouse up to the top left corner of the screen to get to the the apple menu or the file menu or something like that yeah yeah i have a hard time going back and forth between because i mean i boot back and forth between windows and mac and in addition to the scrolling direction switch the difference between command command function and control function is yeah crazy like like command s to save versus control s to save if you're in windows but they're in different places on my keyboard yeah it's and it's like one of those things where like I keep hoping I'll just like become I'm training myself to be like ambidextrous, basically. <laughs> yeah, some people do that with like Dvorak, right? They, they yeah, can, like you can learn Dvorak, but once in a while you would be faced with a query keyboard somewhere yeah. else, and you yeah, don't yeah. have to do that. And it's incredibly anywhere painful. outside of your office. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also like talking about those things. Um, I'm fascinated by you know how much prominence Microsoft got with their keys on the keyboards, which are not really that useful. Um, people could like the Windows key? The two Windows keys, yeah. the menu key. Yeah. And it's like, and it, it's a funny story of like Microsoft at that point in time could tell computer manufacturers to, to you need to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not going to get a Windows license. And so, and we're not going to ask for one. We're not going to ask for three extra keys um, and you figure out where to put them. Oh, they probably told them where to put them. But um, that's kind of an interesting story. Microsoft could not do that today anymore, right? But, right, right. But the right, and, but we still have those keys. All, yeah. of my, all of my keyboards in the 90s, these were all Windows machines, had um, various, you know, really prominently placed hotkeys on the keyboard for different manufacturer provided software packages yeah. that were, in, I mean, they were incredibly poor. Like the, like yeah. the you know, the compact media player so there's like a button that's like play media and it and it you know and it causes your compact presario to like churn for ages and then like pop up with with this thing that would just play a dvd if you put a dvd into yeah. the dvd drive um and then it had like play and fast forward and reverse which only worked inside the compact media player and i had a thinkpad laptop that had this big blue button up at the top that would that would open up like the native thinkpad utilities which weren't yeah. like the it wasn't like the BIOS or something. It was just like a suite of things that slowed down your computer yeah, and exactly. uh, yeah. you know let you um, subscribe to IBM's support service. <laughs> yeah, some some of those decisions are like curiously political. Yeah, 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 and yeah. They kind are kind of territorial. Like we're gonna have this thing. We're gonna have this thing. There, you know, that there was a period of time where like there was wake sleep and something else mm-hmm. on every PC keyboard. Slumber. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and hibernate. Yeah. 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 yeah it was, I, doesn't matter. Nobody yeah, used no that, one right? used. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was completely pointless. But speaking, it wasn't there. speaking of buttons, I actually did stay at a hotel once that had an alarm clock that had both a snooze button and a slumber button, and they were separate. And and I, I never slumber longer. I was terrified to try it. I never pushed to the slumber button um, in the process of snoozing. I would guess that it you know gave you a longer snooze period. Maybe the snooze is like five minutes and the slumber is fifteen minutes or something. Yeah. But it seemed risky to try if you had to be somewhere. <laughs> 
Exactly. Do you want to move on to tools? Another segment we like to do is is called tools, which is where we ask our esteemed guests to <laughs> describe what their favorite tools of the trade are, whatever trade that they accomplish. What are, what are your favorite tools? Um, I guess I have two. I thought about it uh, quite a bit. I have two. One one is just a browser, but in a sense that I really like my first computer, the Atari 800 XL. We talked about you powered it up and it had this big blue screen and it says ready. And it was a cursor. It wasn't even mm-hmm. blinking. I always think it's blinking. It wasn't even blinking. But <laughs> it was great because it was it highlighted so many opportunities. Like for the first time, like you control your TV, you can do whatever you want. You learn basic and you, you can make this thing do whatever you want. And I see a browser and a web inspector or JavaScript to do to like the extension of that. Mm-hmm. So I use like all sorts of things in a browser that I should probably use different programming languages and environments to do. Like like for example, um, Recently, last year, I had this this project where um, I uh, I invited people to a movie theater, and I was showing this edit of a movie that I made. And but I also wanted to have like a little presentation before, um, where I had a few slides and one thing that was kind of like semi interactive. It was a clock, and I decided to do this in a browser. Like I wrote little JavaScript, little HTML. It's somewhat similar to what I do for a living, except uh, it was pretending to be something else. And, and then it, we just played a movie. So uh, we had people in a movie theater for three solid hours looking at a safari window, which I just found <laughs> yeah. kind, of, kind of really, really interesting, right? right because right, you can, right. we can make this thing pretend to be many, many other things. And it's easy now. If you know JavaScript and HTML and CSS, um, you don't have to learn like custom things to do custom things. You can, you can right. just make the browser do a lot of things. It's become the universal computing API. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so, so, so that, was, that was really fun. So I just kind of admired that. And, and, and I, like whenever you open the JavaScript console or Web Inspector, it's just like you get, this, you get excited of like, I, there's still so many things I, I don't know how to do, but I can yeah. learn. Um, so that's one. And it's been going like this forever. But the other one that I've embraced more recently that I really, really enjoy um, is this... Um, I don't even know how to describe it. This database package, this file system extension called Devon Think. It's what Stephen Johnson, who I really admire as a writer, um, wrote, uses to do his research. And now I'm doing my research about keyboards. And it's essentially this big database you can drag things into. You can huh. drag text files, PDFs, images, and it's just easy to search. It's easy to kind of group them. It's, it's a better file system, and it apparently even can... Uh, make connections between things for you that you didn't realize yourself. Huh. And it's being updated right now, but it feels very old school in like a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things where you really have to put in the effort to learn and embrace and learn all the keyboard shortcuts and, and ideas. But then it starts paying back. And it's yeah. starting to pay back for me where I have, you know, 20 gigabytes of PDFs and images of typewriters and computer keyboards. Mm-hmm. And I start seeing patterns that I, you know, it's way bigger than my head can comprehend, but I start seeing patterns. This I, I'm act, I'm gonna try using this myself actually I I, I use Evernote um, which uh, this sounds like a proto Evernote sort of and Evernote's yeah. a bit bloated and and strange these days so I think people also say uh, Scrivener is another one that I mm-hmm. uh, that, that they use for similar purposes I don't know I just started using this one and I enjoy it a lot and it's uh, and and then people were like hey what are you doing I'm like oh let me explain you know it's like a nice <laughs> thing it's like oh you haven't seen this before well right right right. <laughs> So we move on to our next uh, segment. It's called Click Spiral. And this is where we talk about whatever's been in our browser tabs lately, whatever's causing us to hit uh, Command-T or, or, or if you're bold, Command-N. 
and uh, and investigate some new. <laughs> if you're feeling particularly thing. bold, yes. <laughs> yeah, if you really like if you really like a cluttered desktop, yeah. if if you if you hate a cluttered desktop less than you hate a cluttered yeah. tab bar at the top of your browser, maybe you hit Control N. I do from time to time. I try to cluster my tabs. Yeah. Not yeah. always successful. Yeah, Whatever. It, it deteriorates yeah. over time anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like I say the journey journey of a thousand clicks begins with one command in. <laughs> exactly, because then you have all that free space at the top of your of your browser, and you're like it, you're not constrained. So so there's nothing to stop you opening some more tabs. And, exactly. Uh, um, so. Uh, if, if you, the listener, have a click spiral that you'd like to share with us and, and have us discuss on a future episode of the podcast, email hardware at O'Reilly.com. And uh, David and I will take a look. We'll put it in our tabs and uh, we might talk about it on a future episode of the show. So, uh, David, what's your click spiral this week? Mine is there was an article on Hackaday about uh, this guy who has spent a bunch of time. He's got a YouTube channel animating mechanical mechanisms and there's 2100 animated mechanical mechanisms on this youtube channel that you can look at so if you've ever had a question about how oh, wow. ball and socket joints work they have animated versions of it and they, they go all the way from like you know different different types of of linkages and couplings to like more complicated mechanisms like like walking mechanisms and other stuff like that and so it's a good way to, to, to spend some time and increase your increase your knowledge of the way the mechanics work. Is it just one person who did all 2100? Uh, I believe so. This is a cool and a spherical oh, wow. helix drawing machine. That's incredible. It's got this little gear here. Kind of want to play with them right now, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it, it, this reminds me of that uh, YouTube channel that's just all how to pronounce words. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. a really good one. Yeah. Have you come across this? No. It's that's one actually of, interesting. Yeah, it's one of the... It, it's basically the original YouTube content farm. It's just thousands of videos, you know, that that come up really high in search results for like how to pronounce divisive, and then it's just a video, and it says divisive in the video, and the audio says divisive. Yeah, and it just says divisive, it. it's great. and then that's it. And these videos get tens of thousands of, of yeah. views, um, and they're very easy to produce, and and there are thousands of them. Is there a word of the first time you say a word out loud that you already know because you read it, maybe you actually use it in writing, but you mm -hmm. never said it. And then mm -hmm. you say it and you're like, okay, I have no idea whether that was <laughs> the right thing or not. Yeah, yeah. Like my original, my native tongue is Polish. There's no problem like this in Polish. If you see a word, you know how to read it. Uh -huh, There's uh -huh. probably a word for that too. In English, <laughs> it's not the case. It's always a little bit over like, oh, right, right, right. I wonder. Yeah, it could be a German root word or a, or yeah. a Latin root word. And yeah, I, I do this all the time. And uh, I attribute it to... It, it's it's a little embarrassing sometimes to mispronounce a word, and then I uh, I feel reassured by the fact that it's just because I've read it more than yeah. I've yeah. ever spoken it. So it's a very literate. Thing or like to when do, you realize that you've been pronouncing this word the wrong way all these years. Yeah. yeah. Or like you know a word that you've only ever read but never really made the connection. Like for me, like like uh, facade and facade. I never realized mm. that because you always because you know it's spelled oh, yeah. it's actually a, it's actually facade. Yeah. But. I always. Oh, you used to call it facade. Well, I only ever read it in books, yeah. and I never oh. pronounced it out loud. But then I, I remember when I actually made the connection that it was the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it was uh, epitome, uh -huh. and I was so proud because like I know this big word and I know how to use it. And then like, a few years later, someone's like, "No, epitome." I'm like, "Oh, oh epitome." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For me, I, it, I probably even messed the second one. I don't know if that's epitome. Epitome. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go. It's yeah. I've I've done the same. Uh, I, when when I was a kid, the word was. Um, bosom which is spelled b-o-s-o-m and and i thought uh reading it 
it came up in a in a book that we were reading in school. Someone um, described uh, two people as bosom buddies, very you know, very close friends. Yeah. And um, I read it as bosom buddies. Bosom like, buddies. It just had these two separate <laughs> words, bosom and bosom, meaning completely different things in my mind for a long time until I finally merged them into the same record. Well, good. So, what, what what's yours this week, John? Well, before I go into mine, um, I'm I I want to check uh, a matter of pronunciation with the two of you. <laughs> <Right>. Actually, um, <laughs> how do you say the uh, the image format that's spelled G I F? Oh no, this is a this is a trick question. I I, I say I say GIF. I I say GIF, and I'm you say GIF. My, my excuse is that that's how you would say it in Polish, which okay. is where I first saw it. So. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think I think informed opinion tends to say GIF. Right. So both Great. of you are correct. Good. 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 Um, I've always said GIF, and um, and it's one of these things where if you if you say the word in a talk or something, you have to like brace yourself because it's it's very uh, very polarizing. <laughs> right. But it's very polarizing. Um, uh, so, so my click spiral has to do with um, the compression algorithm that's used in in the GIF image format. This compression algorithm is called the Lempel Ziv Welch algorithm. The, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the LZW algorithm, and um, I, I had noticed this because it when you're starting Photoshop, you know, there's this long title screen and it flashes a bunch oh, of yeah, like yeah. credits across it, and one of the credits is you know. Um, LZW algorithm licensed from uh, oh that's true yeah from someone I don't think this is actually the case anymore because as it turns out the patent on the algorithm expired in the early 2000s 2003 2004 interesting um, but I, I I went into a click spiral on the LZW algorithm and um, first of all it's actually it's a remarkably straightforward compression algorithm to simplify the example that Wikipedia gives say you have the string to be or not to be and you have a dictionary translating um, you know, uh, bytes to to letters. You have twenty six letters, and that's very straightforward. But you could also take the string T O B E, which appears twice in that mm-hmm. um, in that line, and turn it into a twenty seventh dictionary entry, so that you would spell to be or not to be as you know entry twenty seven O R N O T entry twenty seven, and and in this way you can you know shorten the the amount of uh, mm. memory required to store it. So this algorithm was was uh, first described in the 1980s, and and it was patented in 1981. It was initially owned by the Sperry Corporation, one of the one of the one of the seven dwarves. You might remember that uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, the 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 early computer makers were known as uh, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves because IBM plus seven smaller computer makers, of which Sperry was one. Sperry and Burroughs merged and formed Unisys, and Unisys owned the LZW. Uh, patent right up until it expired in in 2003 so when when you know CompuServe came along and needed a highly compressed image format in the in the mid 80s they started to use the lzw and to create gif gif excuse me and um not the peanut butter yeah sorry riots have been set off among the listeners um not knowing that it was patented by Unisys. So this led to to a handful of instances of legal action or threatened legal action. At one point, Unisys uh, in the in the 90s tried to get anyone who was using GIFs to, to pay a licensing fee to Unisys. And there's a big scare and a lot of concern. Like even if you were just having one on your website or something like that? Um, well, you could um, get around it by having created your GIFs with software that had properly licensed, licensed the thing. algorithm. Mm, so if you were using Photoshop or something, that was fine. Um, but in other contexts, you would have to pay something like $5,000 as an initial licensing fee. So around 1994 and 1995, people started to get worried about this this uh, you know patent troll under the GIF bridge. And 
the 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 <laughs> ping image format arose from this. And you can actually find, thanks to Google's preservation of um, of the Usenet boards, the thread in January 1995, in which a bunch of uh, people on the comp.graphics message board uh, got together and said, hey, we should have a different um, image format that doesn't involve this patent that's owned by Unisys. And so they uh, got together and and um, and led to the creation of the of the PNG. Oh, interesting. Now, PNG yeah. doesn't support animation, though, does it? No, I don't think so. Oh. But but I doubt that many people were using animated GIFs in the, the, the mid '90s on the internet, right? So there, there's more more animated GIFs in the early <laughs> days, based, yeah. ba- based upon my first website, full of full of <laughs> under, un, under, cons- under, under construction, construction people <laughs> and uh, fire GIF, yeah, right, and, right, and right, the little yeah. like spinning yeah, like police yeah. siren lights, <laughs> the the animated background, and like links to further further web ring sites and everything like that. There's a funny um, the the last message in this thread, January 9, 1995, is from um, a Bill Davidson, who is saying, um, I'm not sure if it makes sense to implement something that's not really supported by hardware, by which he's referring to computers that support more than 256 colors. And so there was yeah. like this question of whether to bother supporting more, more than, than 256 colors. In PNG? In the PNG format. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's my click spiral. Nice. Martin... What is your click spiral this week? Yeah, I was um, kind of enthralled by this. It has really, on the surface, nothing to do with technology. Uh, there's this uh, series by Nathan Rabin. Rabin. Uh, it started as uh, My Year of Flops. So he was f- reviewing for the AV Club all sorts of uh, movies that didn't really succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there's tons of places on the internet where people hate on things uh-huh. uh, that are pop culture. Uh, but he did it in like this really interesting way, which which was you know kind of snarky, kind of observant, but also like with a lot of empathy, with a lot of kind of like what do people who made those things wanted to actually achieve, and why did they fail, or did they actually fail? Maybe you think they did because they didn't make a lot of money or uh, whatever, but maybe they actually succeeded in some secret way. And, 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 and it, it became this, this thing where it, you know, it was one year and it was another year and, and it still keeps going. And now it's called My, my World of Flops because mm-hmm. it's been many years. And he branched out from, from movies to other things like TV shows or albums. Um, and, and I like it because it's not... Uh, and I would actually love m- that kind of stuff applied to technology mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because it's not about analyzing what did we learn from this. We, we usually don't really learn yeah, much, yeah, yeah. but it's interesting just the kind of the lens of there are all of these people who have dreams and insecurities and aspirations and they don't maybe understand the world in, in, in the same way we do, but but they want to put something out there. And and it's kind of fun to see like what's the output yeah, and whether, yeah. whether the audience resonates with it or not or... And there's so many tech products that I think also reflect the personalities of people behind them or or the the, the very particular circumstances that led mm-hmm. to their creation that mm-hmm. we never really like uncover. Yeah, yeah. We just talk about like, you know, Microsoft Keen was a failure because it's like, its shape is weird or whatever. It's like, right, no, right. I want to hear about like what actually happened. Right, right. Actually, that story was probably told at some point. But <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We, I think we do that a, a lot with, um, you know, Apple early Apple products and yeah. like the next computers and and, and things yeah. like that. So there's like a, a, the Lisa, yeah, the Lisa. Yeah. There's like a there's a bit of an archaeological process. Do you think that could happen faster? Like we could we could start to do this within a year of the flop? Or uh, I think it's harder because I don't know if you can get people to talk mm-hmm. because you don't want to burn bridges like 
right, right, right. If the story is yeah. that your investor yeah. sucked, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Or like you don't, you know, it's it's a, it's a small valley, as they say. But yeah. yeah, I remember Michael Malone's book about Apple, the um, Infinite Loop, that came out, I think, around 2000, uh -huh. and it was this interesting chapter that that looked at um, why did uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak actually end up hanging out, hanging out together. Like there was a huge age difference between them yeah. at the time where the age difference actually matters when mm -hmm. whether you mm -hmm. like you, you you go and 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 he looked at them as people. It's like what led them to actually uh, have this relationship. And I've never seen this before. It was really huh. really interesting. Interesting. Um, and and uh, so so Nathan Rabin is doing that for a lot of those things. And I just like this framing. And and it's it's so rare to actually find like an interesting way to talk about something that failed. That's not just like haha. -ha, right, uh, right, right. It was stupid. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Know, a reaction well, video think, yeah. to this <laughs> Batman v Superman. Or right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I love approaches that step back and add a little bit of humanity to to a failure or acknowledge that uh, that there was perhaps you know a spark of inspiration originally and then some forces conspired to to complicate it because yeah. frankly the world is very complicated and most things that don't flop are, are pretty similar to other things that have flopped and the reason that they didn't flop uh, conditions were different yeah you could yeah. think of it almost as like why didn't this flop more than why did those other things flop yeah, that's, yeah. And that's, that, that's a more unlikely thing yeah yeah, yeah. uh yeah so i think that's about the end of the click spiral segment um, if, if you guys, the listeners, have click spirals, as John said, please log on and <laughs> send, transmit to us electronic mail at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Marcine, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, if listeners want to find you on the internet, where do they look? The easiest thing is probably um, look at Aris Luna. Uh, it's, it's Greek word for Mars, uh, Greek word for moon, and .org. So it's my website, and you can find my Twitter um, uh, medium profile, etc., etc., and a couple of things that I feel very proud of. So if you click on them, you might enjoy them, I hope. Uh, arisluna.org. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>